welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Good morning, friends. Uh, welcome to Awaken. And I pray that you feel the community of Awaken and the church with you this morning. Um, it's really hard not to be in the same room together, but I'm glad that we're still together. Um, my name is Jess, if we haven't met. I'm the admin here. And I've been in quarantine with my family for the last three weeks uh, with COVID, and thankfully we're on the mend. Um, but I realized that I quickly forgot to pause. Um, there was always something to do, something to clean, you know, food to make, messes to clean up. So this morning, I'd love to start with a pause. Uh, a pause from the busyness, the noise, the doing. A pause to remember why we're here and what we're seeking. Lord, I thank you for this community, for the space this morning to bring our whole selves and not check it at the door. Whether it's grief or celebration, it's all welcome and held. Amen. Hey, everybody. My name is Micah. I'm back from Chicago, and I'm glad to be back. So um, welcome to Awaken. If this is your first time or you're relatively new and joining us, we're glad you're here. A um, couple things as we begin our gathering, uh, first of which is, if you are new, we are, we'd love to know you are here, so uh, on the website there's a place you can click the button that says I'm new, that will go to our folks, our, our welcome team, um, and we will reach out to you, invite you out to a beverage of your choice, get to know you, get a chance for you to get to know us. Um, also, if you have tithes and offerings, we're super grateful for uh, your continued support of Awakens, so you can do that online as well. A couple things that we want to let you know about, the first of which is I'm going to go in reverse order. Furthest away, uh, there's a game night on February 18th, rescheduled, so we can be in person. And that will be uh, from 7 to 8.30 on the 18th, and uh, there are more details uh, online and on all of these in the Awaken Weekly. Uh, number two, there's an Enneagram workshop coming up on relationships and how the Enneagram affects them. February the 12th from 9 to 11.30 a.m. That's on Zoom, so you can join in on that if you'd like to know a little bit more about the Enneagram. I think it's based off of Ian Morgan Cron's book, um, so if you're familiar with that. Uh, number three, there is an artist mingle coming up February 3rd. That's coming up quick this week, I think, maybe even. 7 to 9 p.m., that's Melody. That's on Zoom as well, so you can get the details and the link in the Awaken Weekly and sign up for that. And last but not least, oh my gosh, very excited about this one, February 13th, two weeks, not today, not next week, but the following week, we will be live and in person in this room, Lord willing. So very excited about that. Uh, and um, there will be uh, kids' community from birth to fifth grade, so at 9.30 only. Kids community all the way. So all the kids, bring them back. We're super excited to have you, and um, we're going to do that. Uh, we'll still have masks in the building and uh, be respectful of one another. The upstairs will be reserved for folks uh, who need some space from others. 
Uh, and we're just very excited about that. So uh, join us then, 9.30 and 11. Again, kids only at 9.30. Sound good? Okay, great. Okay, great. Um, before we get going this morning, I want to give you a little bit of an update. As I mentioned, I was in Chicago, and I'm back from that trip. Uh, a lot happened, and nothing happened. So um, first, thank you uh, for your support, um, for your prayers, for Laura and I sensed and, and actually heard from many of you uh, in the midst of that trip to Chicago. So thank you for, for loving me and us that way. Um, many of my colleagues and people uh, within the covenant are just blown away. They, they keep asking me, like, how's Awaken? Like, are they with you, or is your board with you? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're all behind me. They're, like, in our corner, and they just can't believe it that, like, our church is united, and, like, we're, uh, we're all doing this together. Uh, that's a gift, and it's a real testimony to a lot of people in the covenant, so thanks for being that to us. Um, second, just a little bit of an update as to the meeting itself. Um, I was able to open the, our time with some thoughts uh, of my own about uh, what I hoped for and where I hoped the conversation would go. My advocate, Dick Luco shared his hope that we would just figure out a way to slow the process down, uh, slow it down long enough to, to get new leadership installed at the annual meeting this June, including a new president, a new executive minister for the ordered ministry, a superintendent in our conference. Um, and then they asked, and then it was just sort of open season. <laughs> it's a big room with like 25 people in a horseshoe, and I'm in the middle. Um, so as an eight on the Enneagram, Laura was like, She's a nine. She's like, that was the worst experience of my life. How do you handle that? And people, they're just peppering questions at me. Like, why did you make this decision? And tell me about that. And what about the Bible? And so on and so forth. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, they, they met and, and sort of discerned together, wrote a letter uh, back to me and delivered that, which basically said, um, we're disappointed. We're sad you've made these decisions, you know, chronicling all the rules that I've broken along the way. Uh, and then said, you're still suspended, and um, we'll, we want to see you again in March. So um, one way to look at that is, like, nothing changed. But another way to look at that is we got exactly what we hoped for, which is time, um, a step closer to the annual meeting without the removal of my ordination. So um, in that sense, I guess it's a, it's a win. And, you know, we asked you all as a church, many of you, what do you want to do? Like, how do we move forward as a community in a way that's uh, congruent and honest and authentic to who we are? And overwhelmingly, you said, you reported back to us, like, to stay, to not leave, but to do so actively. And so uh, that's what we're doing. That's, this is a step in that process. So I would encourage you, keep praying, keep hoping. Um, I have some friends and colleagues who were like, bro, it's a lost cause. And I just keep saying, I, I always want to be the, the person who still hopes. You know, Judy Peterson teaches me that. Even if it's foolish, even if it's a fool's errand, to be the kind of person that just holds on to hope. Because hope is a beautiful and, and a dangerous thing. Um, it's the beginning of revolutions and resistance. Um, so I would encourage you to that. Sound good? All right, we are going to pick up where we left off last week. My dear friend Kelly Chapman was with us in this series called The Life and Teachings of Jesus. We're sort of peering into the well that we gather around, which is the life and teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we're asking, like, if we're peering over into the well that we're gathered around, like, what's in it? What are the things that are the most important, the things that Jesus said that we really want to hang on to and pay attention to? So we started with love God, love your neighbor, uh, we move to Jesus' invitation to, to um, nonviolence and uh, active peacemaking. Uh, last week, Pastor Kelly talked about uh, those four friends who dared to mess with the structures and the systems to sort of get 
get their friend to Jesus. Uh, and this week we're going to turn to the Gospel of Luke uh, and a conversation Jesus is having with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It's commonly referred to as the seven woes because Jesus keeps using this phrase of woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, as if to say, like, you better be careful because if you don't, this is, this is going to go very poorly for you. Um, and the whole time, the whole interaction, Jesus is pointing out the myriad of ways that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious institution, are just completely and totally missing the point, like a grand adventure in missing the point. So we'll pick it up in Luke chapter 11, if you have your Bibles. We'll start in verse 37, and uh, if you want to or are able, I'd invite you to stand, and we'll start there. Jesus, oh well, Luke says this, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish. But inside, or you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but on the inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Pray with me. God, this morning as we tune our hearts to this text and this story of Jesus and a bunch of religious people, I pray that by your spirit you would uh, move in us, that you would shape us, challenge us. Uh, if there's a sharp word to be spoken, may our hearts be soft enough to receive it and hear it. If there is a word of encouragement, may we tune in. Uh, and we trust that you're good, that uh, even in our doubt, even in our, uh, the places of darkness, that you are there and that you're moving and uh, inviting us into the light and, and towards you. So do that work, I pray. In the strong name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit, the church said together, amen and amen. Um, I'm going to start, I'm actually going to, I'm going to sort of begin by giving away the ending. So I'm going to actually go all the way to the end and tell you what I think the whole thing is about, and then we're going to back up and we're going to sort of work our way back to the ending. But here's the ending. Um, What's the teaching here? Like, we're peering over the well, we're looking into this well, and we're asking, what are the, the things that Jesus said and taught that are the most important, that we want to hold close, that we want to keep near us? What is it, right? Uh, I would say it this way. The appearance of holiness, or even the acts of holiness alone, so the appearance of holiness or the acts of holiness alone do not, does not, equal a transformed heart. Uh, said differently, Right? The appearance of religion or the appearance of righteousness, the appearance of being associated with the right people or on the right side of the tracks or the right group of people or having the right theological persuasions or ticking all the right boxes or doing all the right rituals, even doing the right things, these alone do not equal or they are not the same as a transformed and a changed heart. So let's dig into this text a little bit. Let's sort of walk through it and then we'll, we'll make our way back to where we started. Uh, Jesus is in another confrontation with the Pharisees. This happens all the time with him in the Gospels. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this account is actually uh, in Matthew's account, or this, this event is in Matthew's account, and it's in fuller detail. There are seven woes that Jesus gives, and Matthew gives a real detailed account. But this is a showdown between Jesus and the religious institution, between Jesus and the religious leaders, between Jesus and the pastors, between Jesus and the denomination, right? Fill in the blank, or you can kind of translate it to 2021. And he's challenging some of the things that they're doing, some of the things they're saying, the way in which they're inhabiting 
this way of being in relationship with God. And he says in verse 37, when Jesus had finished uh, speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with them. So he went in and he reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Now, this doesn't seem like a big deal, right? Okay, Jesus goes in, he gets invited to a party uh, at the Pharisee's house, he comes in, he sits down at the table, and the Pharisee is surprised. But the next verse, Jesus opens up a can on this Pharisee and the, everything that he uh, represents, the, the institution of Pharisees and this sort of group of people, and he has some sharp words for him. So something happened here in this interaction that precipitated or that caused Jesus to kind of go in on this guy and for this guy to be upset about what he's doing. Notice the first thing Jesus does, right? And I love this about this guy. This is one of the reasons why I follow Jesus. I think he's hilarious. He gets invited to somebody's house. He gets invited over for dinner. And the first thing he does is come in and he just starts needling, right? He kind of like starts poking the bear. He starts upending and sort of pulling the rug out from underneath the religious leader, in this case, and the, the rules of, the, of Pharisees. Uh, he upsets their expectations and the things that they thought were the most important. So it's about hand-washing, which to us doesn't seem that consequential, but in their time was very important. For a Jew in the first century uh, who followed Torah, who knew uh, the Old Testament and observed Torah, the washing of hands and the washing of our bodies was a very important thing. There were all kinds of requirements for the washing of oneself. So if you were going to eat a meal, you had to wash yourself in a certain way. If you were going to go to the temple, you had to wash yourself in a certain way. If you were going to go to one of like the high holy festivals and celebrations, you had to like fully immerse yourself in the mikvah, which is this sort of tank or tub where there was a living water coming through. And all of these things... Uh, they were ceremonial, they were ritual, and by that I mean what's most important here is not necessarily that my hands are clean, but that I, I am declared ceremonially clean, that I am uh, washed, I'm ready for temple or for worship or for any of these things. I'm declared clean, not unclean, and that's by virtue of this washing. You had to do it the right way, you had to do it at the right time, you had to do it the right number of times, you had to do it in the right place, you had to do all these things the right way. And these were, this was one of the markers in Judaism. And there were a number of these markers. Uh, you had to sing certain, or say certain prayers at certain times of the day or during worship. You had to sing certain songs at certain times of the year. You had to go to the temple at certain times of the year. Fasting and almsgiving, uh, and of course, with the washing of hands. In fact, in Luke chapter 5, just before this, we see one of these interactions with the Pharisees and Jesus. And they're mad at him because he's, again, transgressed one of these markers, one of these boundaries about fasting. They're saying, you know, John the Baptist, his disciples, they fast and pray, and our disciples fast and pray, but your disciples, you just go on eating and drinking. You know, eat, drink, and be merry. And here's the important part. For the Pharisees, right? Jesus is in the house of a Pharisee. For the Pharisees, hand-washing had become a device. A device that was used as a boundary marker. Like a line in the sand, you're on this side or you're on that side. Uh, it was a boundary keeper, and it was a part of like an intricate, multifaceted fence of observance and Torah and law that you had to pay attention to, and you had to do the right way in order to be on the right side or inside the fence. It had become a means by which control and power was, was secured. It had become a means by which you could determine who was in and who was out, who was righteous, who was unrighteous, who was holy, who was unholy, who was a part of the solution, and who was a part of the problem. Because remember in Jesus' day, 
Everyone's waiting for Messiah. They don't know that Jesus is who we, we know he is. So they're all waiting for God to come back to Israel, to restore Israel, to kick out the Romans, to sort of reinvigorate temple worship, and to sort of bring Israel back to its glory days. They're all waiting for that to happen, and they think it's going to happen through the Messiah. The Pharisees had a particular version of that. They quickened that process, or they thought they were, by the strict adherence to law. Right? So the reason why God wasn't coming back was because of all these you know, unrighteous sinners who weren't following Torah. And so they were so hell-bent on following the rules because they thought it would quicken God's return. And the first thing Jesus does is cut a hole in their fence. <laughs> He's not interested in preserving, protecting, or investing in the structures and systems that were created that kept people out. The boundaries and the markers that determined who was in and who was out, who was part of the solution and who was part of the problem. Consistently, we find Jesus at least agitating those who were hell-bent on preserving these systems and structures and sometimes just completely blowing them to pieces. Remember the temple when he's flipping over tables. That was one of the markers that kept people out. People who wanted to know God, who wanted to worship God, who weren't able to because of this system and structure. And Jesus says, not going to have it. So let's keep going in verse 39. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but you're inside, you're full of greed and wickedness. You keep scrubbing the outside, you're, you're like polishing the outside, you're working so hard, you're doing all these things, temple, Torah, observance, memorizing, blah, blah, blah. But on the inside, you're full of greed and wickedness. Like this is... This is the religion of legalism. This is Pleasantville. This is uh, the Truman Show, where we spend in exorbitant amounts of time and energy like keeping the ruse going. This is kind of the lie of Hollywood, that you gotta, you got to know the right people, and you got to wear the right clothes, you got to be found at the right party, drinking the right thing, with the right people, driving the right car, living in the right neighborhood, to keep up with the Joneses. I was on this plane a couple years ago, actually, I think I was going to California, ironically enough. It may be a bit of a stereotype, but I think it was actually to California. I'm sitting next to this girl, I don't know how old she was, like teenage, late teenage, maybe early 20s. It's winter, so she's wearing this coat with a hood on, with like fur all around it. And I am not exaggerating, for like the moment she got on the plane, she sits down, and she just starts taking pictures of herself. I'm not kidding you, like 150 plus pictures of herself from all these different angles, you know, sunglasses on, hood over, all these things, like to do what with? To post, to, to you know, um, curate her image online. I don't know, but whether it's political or social or in this case, religious, it's all motivated by the same thing, and that is this lie, this belief that we have that our appearance and the things on the outside, even sometimes our actions, are the most important thing. That they will somehow fulfill us or bring us life. And when it comes to religion, we think that God will be satisfied. That God is happy with this. That this is what God wants. That God will welcome us and love us if we just do the right things and check off all the right boxes. So we scrub the outside. We polish it. We come to church. We... We memorize the Bible verses. We go on retreats. We, if the church is open, I'm there. Uh, we baptize our babies. We take the Eucharist. We don't serve the Eucharist to the wrong people. God forbid that. We don't smoke. We don't drink. We don't dance. We don't date people that do, right? We believe this is what God wants and how we can get clean. So we scrub the outside of the cup. And maybe, maybe you grew up in this kind of religion. Maybe you know it all too well. You don't have to 
go very far to find it. Maybe, you're, maybe you've left it and you've, you've, you've found it to be hollow and shallow and now you're looking for something else. I don't know, but this is the religion of legalism. Having to be right and pure and holy. And, and it's like the, there's no cost too great. Even people sometimes were willing to sacrifice for this system of legalism. And this is what the Pharisees had sort of gotten themselves into that Jesus continues to have a go at. Now, before we get to what Jesus says next, why is this so attractive to us? Like, I'm here, I'm talking about it, and it seems like, well, duh, don't do that. And yet, you don't have to go far, if you study humans at all, you don't have to go far before you get a version of this kind of behavior in social settings, in political settings, and for sure in religious settings. Why is this so attractive to us, and what kind of God does this presuppose? If you study humans at all, psychology and anthropology and sociology, it becomes very clear very quickly that everything in our bodies and our brains desires, wants, needs resolution. Like, said differently, we don't like living in tension or unknowing or ambiguity. Psychologically, we need to know, we want to know, like, where do I stand? What is my status here? Whether that be social or religious. And when it gets to God, it gets really, really interesting and sometimes really gross. Is God happy? Is God pleased? Is God angry? Is God going to accept me? Does God love me? Is God good? I want to know. And this, this system broadly, but specifically for the Pharisees at this time that they had developed, it's an easy answer, right? It, it, it's clear. Here are the rules. Here are the regulations. You got to do this at this place, at this time, in this way. You got to follow these things. Don't ask questions. That's not on the table. And it resolves all the ambiguity, and we love it. We just, we long for it. And we love to know who's in and who's out. Because then there's a common enemy. And when there's a common enemy, we bond. <laughs> right? This, people talk about this with soldiers in war. When there's a common enemy, there is a bonding experience. And so when we have a common enemy, when we know who's good and who's bad, when we know who's in and who's out, and all that's very clear... We bond together, and so pick your, pick your poison, depending on which tradition you're from, right? Who the enemy is, or who's, who's in and who's out. And we love that. Even though, even though we know it doesn't work, or it doesn't satisfy, we still love it. And it, it, it also provides a, a control device for whoever's in power in the system... Legalism is a form and a means by which we can control the situation. We just convince all the people that what's most important is to follow the rules, to do all these things, and then they just do it because they think it's the most important thing. If you've watched The Hunger Games, it, that's on display. If you've seen the movie or the, read the book The Giver, right, where they sort of they, they, they take away pain and strife by converting to sameness, but then there's one kid who can see in color. He starts asking questions, and he up, upsets the whole system. Why did the Pharisees have this gigantic system of rules and regulations and demand strict adherence? Because we love it. We want it. We love answers and resolution and a lack of ambiguity, the appearance of knowing, and frankly, we love power and preserving power when it serves us. But what kind of God does that presuppose? Like, what kind of God would want humans to be that kind of, to, to worship in that way? Imagine if that's actually what God desires, that we just 
do all the right things, check all the right boxes, don't get out of line. Like, that's a petty, insecure, and power-hungry being if that's what God is like. See, even if you just flip it and you say, okay, legalism and rules and regulations, that's one thing. But then what does that say about God? If we know anything about God from what we know about Jesus, we know that that can't be true. So Jesus keeps going. Inside, you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? Notice, just quickly, notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, well, he preserves both. He says, it's not just the outside that matters most. And then, you know, you can, as long as you polish the outside, your insides can be like crap. No, he's like, that's incongruent, that's not consistent. But he also doesn't say, all you need to do is have faith, and then you can just be a total jerk out, out there on the street. As long as the inside's pure and clean, it doesn't matter what you do. Jesus doesn't say that either. He says, you have, like, did not the one who made the outside also make the inside? Both of them are important, and they have to be integrated and congruent. That's why we value authenticity. Jesus says, the outside and the appearance, you you polish them, they're all shiny, but the inside, where no one can see, the quiet places, are full of intentions and attitudes that are evil and wicked. You keep playing these games, you make everyone think that on the outside, you're something that you're not. And you think that this is what God wants, but if you recite enough prayers, if you offer enough sacrifices, God will be happy, but deep down, in the quiet places... In the still, in the small, there's greed and malice and anger and jealousy, selfishness. And you, in doing so, shining the outside, being so concerned about this and not paying any attention to this, you have completely missed the point. You flip the whole thing on its head. You're like running around chasing your tail, playing a game that you cannot win. Later, I think... Paul or in the book of Hebrews it says if you want to play the game of the law then you'll be judged by the law and you can't win you can't do it no one can the prophet Hosea says to the people of Israel God speaking I desire mercy not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings Isaiah says God says I'm sick of your sacrifices don't bring me your burnt offerings you parade around my the courts with your worthless sacrifices the psalmist The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a contrite heart. And in verse 41, Jesus gives us a similar word. He says, but now as for you, what is inside of you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Which if you're paying really close attention actually sounds like more things to do, right? This is a tricky verse. It's it's tough to translate. It, it almost appears as if Jesus is saying, you shine the outsides, you spend so much time, exorbitant amounts of time and energy washing and cleaning and doing these things and observing and blah, 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 and on the inside it's just a mess. Well, here's what you should do. Just do one more thing, but just don't do it for yourself, and then everything will be fine for you. But that's actually not what Jesus says. I'm going to put two different translations of this verse up on the screen, and you'll see why it's so tricky. The first, the New Living Translation is sort of the... I'm, The translators are trying to help us make sense of this, but actually I don't think they help. It says, so clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor, and you will be clean all over, right? That's tit for tat. That's the whole, that's like maybe even the same system Jesus seems to be critiquing. Do this, and then you get that. But literally, if you were to dig into the Greek, what it actually says is, but give as alms 
those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. Give as alms. Give, like, you know how you give alms to the poor? Like, give something like you're giving alms. Well, what's the something? Great question. Give something like you're giving alms. Well, the something is those things that are within. Well, what's within? Jesus has just said, you, you, you spend all this time whitewashing the outside, polishing, cleaning. But what's on the inside, your heart, your attitudes, your, act, your, your motivations, and your intentions are greedy and wicked and evil. What Jesus says is, but give as alms, surrender unto God what is on the inside, your intentions, the very heart, the seat of your being. Surrender that to God. And allow God's spirit to work within you, and what will flow out of you will be love of God and neighbor. See, we, this is back to where we started the series. Jesus' whole point here is the kingdom, the life of the kingdom, flows from the inside out, not from the outside in. We, ask, we, we spend all this time and energy wondering how can we be clean before God? How can we make God happy? How can God be pleased with our lives? And we think, well, if we could do all these things, religion, da, 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 read the Bible, study it, go to church. And Jesus is saying, listen, that whole game, it's bankrupt. It, 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 it always ends the same. The life of the kingdom, the one that I'm inviting you to, is one that begins deep inside one that begins in the quiet places in the small in the still which is why it's no surprise when when god shows up on the mountain that it's in the still small voice the the quiet babbling brook it's not the wind it's not the fire it's not the earthquake it's the spirit see this is the upside down bizarre nature of this kingdom jesus invites us to it's not the loud and boisterous it's not the outside appearance it's not the thing that's shiny and new it's the places that are, it's the mustard seed, it's the quiet, it's the still, it's the places that are hidden. Jesus says, surrender those to the divine, give those, your heart, your intention, your attitude, your motivations, and allow that to be influenced, informed, transformed by the Spirit of God, and from that will flow a well of living water. Friends, I want to invite you this morning to this deep and profound wisdom that runs totally against everything that we see every day in our lives. Which is that it's not up and to the right all the time. Like, success in the kingdom is not up and to the right. It's not bigger, it's not more, it's not uh, louder. No, it's actually often underneath, hidden, buried, quiet, in the secret places. So, I actually want to end today by inviting you into just a, a moment of consideration, a moment of meditation, and ask you a few questions about this wisdom and teaching that Jesus offers. We can get so bound up and wrapped up in all the different things that we think will make God happy, will give us life, will, make, uh, will fulfill us, check the boxes, and, we, and we're so afraid, we're so afraid of getting it wrong. But if you come to realize that actually this is not what God desires. This is not what God requests. It's like, whew, it's freedom. And when we surrender to the work of the Spirit in the still and in the small and in the quiet, in the hidden places, 
this mustard seed kingdom, this small, uh, tiny little thing which has the power to transform and change the world takes root in our heart and lives and begins to grow in us. And it flows from the inside out. And that, my friends, that's good news. That's when we can love God out of, out of abundance, out of overflow, and we can love our neighbor as ourself. Because we're not trying to impress anybody, because we're not trying to put all, uh, all sorts of you know, masks and faces on that really aren't, no, it's God, do the work on the inside. Change me from the inside out. Make sure, uh, change me so that my inside matches my outside, so that I'm authentic and I'm congruent, so that I am one, like you are one. That's the wisdom. That's the teaching. And I want to offer it to you this morning. So let me offer us a word of prayer and then just a moment of silence to consider some of these things. So pray with me. God, as we take some time to stop this morning, to pause, Holy Spirit, would you work in our lives? Would you work in our hearts? And to the degree that we can surrender to your leading now, Speak to us, I pray. So just in the next few moments of silence, I want you to consider a couple of questions. Are there any ways in which I'm, I'm polishing the outside? Is there anything that I'm doing that's motivated by what other people will think? Because I think it's right and that God will be pleased or accept me. Is there anything that I'm doing that's motivated by I want to appear as holy, righteous, good, right. And surrender those things to the work of the Spirit. And then ask, Spirit, what's the still, small voice? What's the, what's the hidden, maybe what's the door in my heart that is yet to be unlocked? And I just want to invite you to, into a time of, of meditation on those two things of outside and inside. What's the work that God's inviting you to do deep inside and to move towards that, trusting that the Spirit is at work leading to light and goodness and from that, a transformed heart, the overflow will be a life of worship and love to God and neighbor. As we make our way to the table this morning in response, these simple elements of bread and wine <clears throat> remind us of who Jesus was and what he taught. Right? Remember what he says to his disciples. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said this, this is my body, broken for you. And when you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. Like, remember me. Put back 
the things that I have taught you, bring them close to you, so close that you could even take them in. And in the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood, which will be shed for you. When you drink of it, remember me. Bring, bring to mind the things that I've taught you and who I was and what I said. Don't, don't be deceived that the game is not to run around and do all the things and check all the boxes and make sure that they've got it right and they've got it right and they've got, no, 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 no. Eat the bread, drink the cup, let the still small work, this, the mustard seed of the kingdom take root in your life and grow and from that, love God and neighbor. So as you take the bread and the cup today, I'd invite you to hear these words. This is the body of Christ which is broken for you. Take and eat. As you take the cup, I invite you to hear these words. The blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. Jesus tells this one story about uh, narrow or wide is the path and many will take it. And that path leads to like not life. And narrow is the way, and few will find it. That leads to life. It's like on the one side of the road is, is works without a deep life of faith. It's what Jesus was critiquing in the Pharisees. Doing all these things without this deep and abiding life of faith in the Spirit, in God. On the other side of that is this life of faith without any any evidence of it in the world. James says that that faith is dead. So it's neither this works without a deep life of faith, nor is it this supposed life of faith without any difference in the world. It's, it's this integration of the two. And it begins with this transformed heart and life that Jesus invites us into. And from that, this narrow path that we're called to lead, that leads to life, a deep life of faith, which is why we do things like the Enneagram and, and spiritual formation, because that matters. That's where it begins. When we're not transformed from the inside out, then all, any of the works that we do, it's only a matter of time before they get twisted. And they're motivated by the wrong things. And that's dangerous for ourselves and the people involved. But when we tend to this inner life, we ask the Spirit of God to lead and guide us and change us and transform us. It's from that place that our action in the world, that our, our advocacy, our showing up, that, that it can come from a place of healing. We've been healed, and so we participate in healing. So that, that's the path. That's the invitation, friends. So as you go, know that the Lord blesses you and keeps you. The Lord lifts up his face to shine upon you and is gracious unto you. The Lord is lifting up his countenance to you, giving you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The church said together, amen and amen. See you next week. And then the week after that, I'll see you in the pews at Awakening. Grace and peace. Find us online at www at awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com 
backslash Awaken Community. Or on Twitter, Awaken Community. See you next time.